Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 360, recorded February 6th, 2022. And today we're doing Mission's End, which is a Taz miniseries that came out in 2009 that we somehow missed in our first go-through of all the comic books. Mm -hmm. I'm really enjoying a lot of aspects of these, uh, and I'm kind of surprised we, we missed them. I love how much they're using phaser rifles, and I, uh, I, I love the cage pistol phasers they're using, and uh, it's just uh, it's a great blast from the past, at least the first issue. Right. Now, in the cage episode, they called them lasers, right? Or did they already have the word phasers? I think they might have called it laser. Yeah, that's what I thought. I think you're right. So... But yeah, anyways, these are interesting books that uh, that when we started, we thought it was all set at the end. It's called Mission's End. It's supposed to be the final mission of the Enterprise before it goes in for at the end of the five-year mission. But did not end up being that way with at least the first issue being like an early mission. Well, and I think there was some reference to the idea that this was the first mission in issue one. Mm-hmm. And then... You see the last one, so they kind of bookending things. Although yeah. in the issue itself, I don't remember them saying anything about be- being the first mission. Right. But due to the cast of characters, it's obviously early. Very early. Yep. <laughs> yep. A lot of people haven't died yet. Right. And there's no McCoy. Right. Yes. Uh, Dr. Piper? Piper. Piper. Yeah. Yeah. Which, ironically enough, he's in the first issue, but barely. And then he's mentioned a lot in the later issues, which is funny because he didn't really seem to have a big part in the first issue. No. But he becomes a plot point in the later issues. Right. Because they had to get McCoy off to the Enterprise and onto the planet. Well, shall we just go ahead and go over the first issue before we spoil everything? (laughs) Let's go. Let's do it. (laughs) All right. So this came out March of 2009 doesn't have a title that I know of, but it's just called Star Trek Missions End, number one. Story by Ty Tippleton. Art by Stephen Moeller, or Molnar. Colors by John Hurt. Letters by Neil Yutaki. Edits by Andy Schmidt and Scott Dunbuyer. So the first cover is by Joe Corney, and it shows Kirk kind of looking all sad and thoughtful. And then behind him, we see the Enterprise shooting its phasers. And then at the very bottom, we see Spock, Kirk, and what looks to be Gary Mitchell wearing their Where No Man Has Gone Before uniforms holding phaser rifles. Yeah, phaser rifles. Made Ken very happy. Oh, yeah. Cover B was by Kevin McGuire, and it shows a normal Taz uniformed. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy walking towards the reader, and then behind them we see the Starfleet Delta swoosh, or I guess at this point it would be the Enterprise Delta swoosh, 
and it's all breaking as if it was a, a mirror being broken. All right, so the first issue takes place during the first year of the Enterprise's tenure of James T. Kirk, and they're arriving to the... It's not a planet, and it's not a space station. It's a spaceship that's just floating there, completely self-sufficient, and it's called Archinar 4. And they say it's a very old spacecraft that must have been built by some giants, and now the indigenous species within the ship... They're all insectoid, with the sentient species being what looks like spiders. And then there's other creatures and stuff throughout the ship. They did just recently perform a warp drive test, so therefore Starfleet sees that it's time for a good old first contact. So Kirk is joining up with the local survey team headed by a woman named Captain Cassidy. They are there in the ship taking in the sights when they are attacked by a stampede of giant centipedes. Kirk saves Cassidy by actually swinging on a rope and snatching her to safety. After this event, Kelso admits that uh, he has a thing about bugs, but assures the captain it will not interfere with his performance going forward. As he walks away, Gary Mitchell comes up to the captain and says that uh, usually women will fall for the dashing Kirk who literally sweeps them off their feet, as Kirk just did with Cassidy. Kirk tells his friend that Cassidy's a Starfleet officer and not a woman, and for him to get back to work. The Starfleet crew returns to Cassidy's hidden observation post. Here we see that Ahura is working on translating the Spider-Men's languages. Again, they seem to be the dominant species, and we also see that there's some, like, giant dragonflies and the centipedes, and they seem to be domesticated creatures, much like dogs or horses here on Earth. The crew look into, or I'm sorry, the crew load into two shuttles, and they make a big show of coming into the space station. They are then guided by dragonflies to the center of a town, and they are greeted by many of the spider people. And these spider creatures crowd in on the humans, though they do not say a single word. So at first they think the universal translator is not working, but Ahura insists that it is working. They just ain't saying nothing. The crowding continues, and they obviously lack any type of observed personal space. And it seems to be getting a little too much for Kelso, who starts reaching for his gun. Kirk orders them to stand down, uh, so then Kelso does, but in addition to that, Spock starts screeching, Karah, Karah, which seems to disperse the group of spiders. Later, a single Spider-Man comes up holding a stick of some sort, which might be a microphone or an alien translator or just a cane. It's, it's never clear. He then speaks to Cassidy and takes them to the leader of the Spider-Men. Gifts are then exchanged, and they have a big dinner in honor of the new arrivals. The alien insects are very cordial. Uh, Kelso seems to be loving the food, saying it tastes just like lobster from back home. Yet Mitchell says that he has a hard time eating what the aliens are preparing, since the aliens also treat these insects that they're eating as pets. So I guess... Mitchell doesn't know where that prime beef from Earth comes from. Because every cow was somebody's pet at some point. Maybe. 
<laughs> they are then shown some historical reenactments of some spider wars. Mitchell asks the leader if all their entertainment is so violent. The leader assures him that they have all kinds of programs, but these historical reenactments remind them of their violent pasts and how they are not to go to war amongst themselves. Uh, part of the show seems to be killing one of the large, huge centipedes in real life. But the creature breaks loose and then smashes through the table. Kirk jumps on it, the creature, and then Cassidy is able to kill the creature with her phaser. And then she tells Kirk that they are now even. Later, Spock and Kirk are allowed to visit what the aliens call the Heart of the God, which is the power source for the ship. That still seems to be working after all these years of neglect when the previous creators died or abandoned the ship for some reason. Spock tells Kirk that this unknown power source has enough power to allow the ship to travel anywhere in the galaxy and destroy planets with just a press of a button. On that ominous note, the issue ends with To Be Continued. Quite ominous. Right. I can't wait for the next issue to find out what happens immediately after. Yeah. The whole idea about first contact and stuff, and about, you know, usually, hey, we're the Federation, and you're technologically inferior, but hey, we'll help you out. What happens when you run into a, a budding society that actually has, you know, big-time destructive powers and a tendency to use it, or perhaps a tendency to use it? And it's like, I kind of like that, investigating that scenario in the, in the story so far. Right. I guess that's kind of how the Vulcans would, would have looked at the humans at that point. You ain't kidding. <laughs> well, except that we didn't have the technology, but we were potentially quite violent. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, it never shows what an alien, what one of these insect ships looked like, but they did say they had a, a successful warp test flight. So I guess that there's the big ship, but that there's also smaller ships that that are flying away from the, the, the great ship. That's an interesting point, because when this first started, and they were talking about, uh, you know, they had a test warp flight, I was expecting they had actually made ships with their own hands, which they don't have opposable thumbs. So exactly how did they do that? I mean, I got a lot of questions about that. I mean, they got eight arms, but, you know, no hands. So how are they exactly, <laughs> you know, you know uh, forging metals and things like that? I'm not sure, but are they saying that the whole moon-sized spaceship moved at, at warp uh, speed? Maybe. Is that what they're saying? Uh, that's not the way I took it when I read it, but right. now that you mention it, uh, that could be what they meant. I mean, and yeah, I mean, but that wouldn't be their ingenuity. That would have nope. been them borrowing, you know, right. where they happen to live off of. Yeah, and it sounds like they know enough about this moon-sized sphere that it's really a spaceship. It's not like they know enough about it that they would know that. Mm. But but does that matter? I mean, if you've got the ability to go at warp speed, you're going to potentially come into contact with other civilizations. Right. And so whether you figured it out yourself or you got it from a prior giant race, um, maybe it doesn't matter with first contact. I don't know. Right. 
that, that's always been one of the things that I didn't really like about Halo and Stargate and, you know, even Doom to a certain degree mm-hmm. and Mass Effect, too, is that it's all about humans finding ancient tech tech and mm-hmm. then adapting it as mm-hmm. opposed to coming up with it on their own like they do in Star Trek and stuff. Right. Well, they did have to reverse engineer uh, what the the 302s fighters and the and then the Prometheus in Stargate. So they attempted to actually use death gliders at first. Uh, but found that that didn't work. So they had to reverse engineer a lot of stuff. So yeah. So that one's kind of but the portal itself, they didn't. They completely. Didn't build completely agree with that. It completely agreed. Right. That is a hundred percent the founders or whatever they. I forgot what they were called. There's so many of these older races that the same kind of theme comes up. I kind of get confused about what they're calling the uh, the previous, you know, civilizations. Right. Yeah. It's just convenient that in all these sci-fi shows, there's always. Somebody that came before, and they're not here anymore, and then we undercover their their exactly. tech and yep. use it for our, our, yep. ourselves. Yep. Yeah. All kinds of it. So this definitely feels like that. And, and at first I was like, oh, this is like if the Death Star suddenly showed up in Trek world and started being run by insects. Because, I mean, that's basically <laughs> what this thing is, is a big Death Star. Yeah. I thought Gary was unusually insightful when he said you know is that what's going to happen in a million years from now to whoever finds our civilization or the the bugs or whatever that's on earth right uh, i thought that was oh, that's hey gary that's kind of deep <laughs> of course in this case what th- these were just insects i mean because the spaceship has trees and stuff on the surface I mean, it looks like it's a forest right? Uh, thing, so they obviously meant it to be that, right? The originators, the, these giants or whatever. Right. And so that's why the insects are giant? Because yeah, the, That's what I was getting at, too. I don't know. Okay. Because the, all the insects are giant. I mean, they're big. And these millipedes are like, or centipedes, whatever they are. Whatever they are. Um, they're big. Really big. Right. And when we say like a forested area, I mean, these, it looks like a forest with a sun in the sky mm-hmm. and, you know, full on cities, you know, off in the horizon. Yes. So it definitely looks like a like a planet. Exactly. So I was really confused on how this ship worked. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, is it is it like a, a tiny Dyson sphere where... There's a core that's a that's a planet, and then there's a middle section that's habitable, and then there's an outer shell. I, I don't know. Well, there's underground, definitely, but right, yeah, uh, I don't know either. And yeah, and, and there there are some scenes. I don't know whether it's in this issue or later issues, but they have some great scenes of like a cityscape, like some they're on a balcony or something, right? And it's like wow. This is a pretty cool-looking cityscape that's on the surface. And you're looking at it, and it's like, did those spiders build all this? Uh, or is this all leftovers from the giants? Because if it's leftovers from the giants... Uh, mm, I mean, the doorways aren't giant. So that means that the right. spiders must have made it, right? And so the, the spiders made all this? 
I mean, it's a big city. Yeah, and it's a very human-looking city. Exactly. Right? Little, little yeah. points and stuff like that. that I agree. Very human. Exactly, right. Yeah. It's an interesting story, but some of the details are like, I just have questions. Right. Let me just say that. And they don't do a good job of answering the questions. No. I mean, I haven't finished it yet. I'm only on issue four, but mm-hmm. so far I'm like, eh. Not everything's gelling as well as it probably should. <laughs> right. But if <laughs> you don't getting that close if you don't worry about it that much, it's fine. <laughs> so but I loved seeing Kelso, I loved seeing mm-hmm. Carrie Mitchell, mm-hmm. you know, when he doesn't have silver eyes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Where he's the wise cracking womanizer. Right. Um Best friend and, of James and Dr. T. Piper too. I mean, it's cool seeing him. Well, did he say anything? I mean, I, I don't, know. I don't think he had a single line. Yeah, I don't think so he either. Just stands there, right? And it's interesting to see that they made an effort to make Kirk a little different because he's a real. Can I say ASS? He's a he's a he's a tight ASS. <laughs> I mean, in most of this, I mean, he's 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 got a stern look on his face in a lot of it. Right. And he's like, you know, you can tell. I, I think they made they purposely made him a little bit more stiff. So, you know, he's he hasn't been a captain all that long. And uh, and he's hasn't loosened up in the role yet. Right. But he definitely does the Errol Flynn swashbuckling when ah. he swoops in on that vine. And I thought you were going to say Tarzan. Tarzan. You, you too, being yeah. a Tarzan fan. Yeah, totally. Should have said Tarzan. Because <laughs> <laughs> it does look like a Tarzan thing. Right. And it's so stupid. <laughs> it is kind of stupid. Yeah, I mean, especially since, I mean, she's the one who's been on this planet for how long? Right. A lot longer than Kirk and company. So she should be able to avoid stuff like that. But Right. Yeah, she's just hiding behind this tiny little tree while they, the horde passes her. Mm. Yeah. But I guess Kirk saves Kelso, too, right? So he pushes Kelso out of the way, and mm-hmm. then he grabs a vine and swoops into the middle of him, grabs her, pulls her up. He's the hero, man. Those muscles rippling out of his shirt. <laughs> <laughs> well, something I do like about this is everybody looks pretty normal. So nobody's drawn with superhero physiques or anything. They look like they did on Where No Man Has Gone Before. Right. Only because those shirts are so unflattering. Uh, are they? I mean, they're just... Aren't they just Giant more or less... wool sweaters. I don't know. Oh, wool? Are they wool? I don't wool? know what they are. Okay. They look thick. Well, they got the thick collar. No toys about that. But I always thought of them more like regular Taws TV series season one, where it's more of a velour kind of shirt, but with different collars. Mm. And without the braid. Well, actually, they kind of have sleeve braid. Yeah. I'm not a fan. I'm glad they moved away from this. Right. And I'm glad they're not copying it for the Pike show. Uh, no. I do, I do like well, those all the modern productions that have been going on covering old time periods have had to make things better because, I mean, come on. I mean, the 1960s, you know, ship design and, and uniform design and all that kind of stuff, you can do so much better now. You got to do that. Right. So. But you just give a little nod to it and then, then you just move on. Right. Like the uh, the Enterprise Bridge that they showed on Discovery, 
they had a lot of like red, orange, or whatever. Yeah, the big primary color splotches for no reason. I thought that was good. I thought that was great. That that was great for what you just said, the nod. That was good for the nod, but yeah. We got and, and they got the jelly bean switches to some degree, but <laughs> yeah, we really gotta make this look like it isn't all made out of wood. So yeah, we don't know what's going on with the spider people or where they came from here. I did like seeing Ahura trying to learn their language. That was kinda cool. Yeah, that was good. Not that it's all made automatically just happening. Right. Now, I'll be honest, I read this on a tablet mm-hmm. and then also on a computer. Mm-hmm. Both times, both places, when the aliens start speaking, yeah. it is really hard to read. It is. So I had to, every time they were talking, I had to like zoom in on just that panel just so that I had enough room to yeah. to make that font out. The, exactly. The font is really That's it. Good. It's the font. Right. And then the, the thickness, the boldness of it. It becomes bolder, it becomes a lot less bold, you know, very thin, right. which made it hard to read. Right. And, and it, plus, the way they're speaking is obviously kind of, words are in a not typical order, so. Right. Yeah, they got a little bit of the Yoda, Yoda speak. <laughs> right, exactly. And then what, he, I like how he calls them forearms, or yeah, four Oh, that's legs. right. He calls himself eight legs, and they call the the centipede things uh, mini legs or something. I don't know. They had they have a different name for them too. Yeah, and they also they also this whole concept of being low or being high. Right. So because they're smaller, the humans are low or something. And I do agree. The four leg thing they said at first it was like. Four leg? We got two legs. Oh, oh, they mean the arms, too. Mm-hmm. Okay, gotcha. I didn't get that at first. So And so did you get the whole television thing that they were watching? So were they watching a real uh, interaction where they were really killing another spider creature for entertainment? Or was that just a movie and then in addition to the movie, they're physically killing the centipede creature? Yes. <laughs> So the thing that looks like a TV set, a big, a big, 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 big screen TV set, which mm-hmm. it shows the two spiders like with uh, cutlasses or something, big, big uh, right. swords. That look, they, I think they actually said, enjoy fiction performance story, uh, right. battles of Cian, very popular. So that looked like it was just, you know, TV show, a movie. But then. <laughs> Yeah, they're really, they're really fighting a millipede. So multiple spiders holding on to chains. How, how, is that a hand I see in that spider? Hand. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. The spiders oh, yeah, have yeah, 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 the well, spiders have two fingers and a thumb. Okay, so that explains things better. So their forward legs are. Two forward legs do have a three-digit hand. Okay, that makes more sense. I just noticed that now. Right. Yeah, then they have six legs behind it. Right. No, they have four legs behind it. Well, oh, you're right. Oh, I'm looking at that panel, too. I yeah, see four I legs. I didn't notice that. I thought they were eight legs. Ha! That's not a spider. Yeah, no. that's By not. definition, that's not a spider. Huh. 
Interesting. Okay, so they sprout an extra set of so they got uh, an extra yeah. set of appendages. Okay. Anywho, yeah. So they're they're cruel to these millipedes. Right. Yeah. Which yeah, sucks. but why why does Kirk jump on that one? Out of all the things, he's like somehow ends up on top of it. Seemed weird. Well, or, I th- I think what he it's very awkward. But so that's the millipede that got loose, right? Right. Right, and, and then the and then the spiders are just going to kill it, and then Kirk gets involved trying to subdue it without killing it because he didn't want it to be dead. But you're right; he's like jumping on top of it and falling off, or I don't know what the hell's going on. But then they shoot it with a phaser or right. a laser, whatever, knock it out. Right, which is definitely not what the spider guys are going to do. Yeah, they're going to carve them up and have them for dinner. Yuck. Right, and they should. I mean, obviously, he's he's their food. Yeah. So is that the pet that he was talking about, Kelso was talking about? Yeah. And he's like, ah, I have a hard time eating food that you consider a pet, which yeah. I was like, well, where are you getting that from? Because well, they look to be eating like little shrimps or some sort of small insect creature. Well, uh, yeah, hmm. I don't know. But when Kelso said it's like lobster, it's like, oh, you have a point. Hmm. <laughs> I do like lobster, but yep, the insects of the sea. I know, which I really like lobster, but eh. Anyway, that's the only insects I would eat. No, thank you. You've never had a grasshopper, or never had a grasshopper. Chocolate-covered ant. I have never had that ever. Have you? Uh, yeah, I think I've had them. So was it so covered up with chocolate or something else? That yeah, you the ant taste it? was that you couldn't taste it. Yeah, okay. But I've seen these fried grasshoppers or something. Yeah. And it's like, it isn't covered with anything. No, it's just <laughs> it's, sautéed. Exactly. You're eating the, the whole uh, grasshopper. Ugh. Yeah, I don't think I've ever had that, grasshoppers. I have not and I never will. But you've had shrimps. Well... Well, yes, shrimps, uh, lobster. I mean, I love all that stuff. Um, I mean, but, yeah. Crawfish. I like crawfish. Exactly. I like crawfish, yeah. Mm. You, just, mm. you just like your bugs in the ocean or water. <laughs> in water, exactly, yeah. Uh, crunchy, okay. come on. Of course, you know, if you don't take the shell off, well, those other things are crunchy too, but uh, <laughs> uh, oh, let's, let's get off that topic. Say, I love the hand phasers or lasers. Uh, yeah. Which one? The one that she shoots or the one that Kelso had in his pocket? Well, aren't they the same? The pistols are uh, all the same. Yeah, I think so. I guess so. Okay. With so, the three nozzles? Right. So they always had the three different sized emitters. And I don't know if that was for kill, stun, and heat rocks, but they always had three. <laughs> But the thing is, I'm looking at this, and it's a, it's a very nice drawing of the Kelso one, because like Kelso's going for it, and it's still on his belt. And you can't see the handle very well, but you can see the top part. And there's a lot of detail there. And I've got a prop that I think was a kit from Roddenberry.com that I put together, painted, and that kind of stuff. And there are parts on the laser shown in the comic book that are not on this Roddenberry kit. And I thought at first it was artistic license or something, adding some extra garbage onto it that wasn't necessary. 
But I went out and Googled a picture of Star Trek cage phaser. I did something like that. And I got a great picture. I think it's a great close-up picture of the phaser actually still on the belt. There's no hand on it or anything. And it's like, boy, this what they did in the book is spot on. Mm. What they had in the cage episode. So the big thing is there's three in a row. There are three like silver parts. The little dots or something? Like dots, exactly, along the top middle of the, of, of the housing. And then there's a dial in the back on the right side. So like maybe some kind of setting kind of thing on the, on the side. Which I got to say, looks awkward <laughs> to change, but whatever. And that dial and those three silver dots are not on my Roddenberry.com uh, laser at all. Mm. And also, there's a white kind of cross pattern on the handle grip, which is not on mine at all in any way, shape, or form. And you can see it great on the photo from the cage episode, and you can just barely see it on the bottom of the handle because most of Kelso's hand is over the handle. But if you look on the bottom of the grip, you'll see the little cross pattern white stitching. Right. Yeah, I definitely see it. So... And that's missing on yours? That's missing on mine, too. But mine, mine just has, like, diagonal, um, like, slits. Mm. So there's no cross pattern. And it's certainly not white. Anywho, so this, this picture I found on the internet is the same orientation and everything to what they're showing in the panel where Kelso's going for his, his pistol. So they, I, I'm going to guess that the artist might have used this particular photo from the episode to draw from. As the reference, yeah. Yeah. Looks great. Well, Love it. I'm looking at a picture from the episode, and I don't see that little dial on the side of the cage. Oh, okay. So well, maybe only some of, them, some of them have that dial. Or are you looking at the other side of it? Or maybe you're right. Maybe there's different versions that they had. Right. Um, can I? Yes, I can. Okay. So I just pasted into the uh, Skype chat the photo I'm talking about. If you do a search on Google, oh yeah, you'll come across it. So you're seeing other photos that don't have that that are from the right side of the of the laser pistol, and you don't see the dial. Uh, it's from the top. Oh, I see. Okay, so you just sent it, to me. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. the cool one. That's what we're number one uh, yep. was turning it on overload. Right. So it doesn't have the three dots. It has the two, like, black buttons, and it doesn't have the spinny thing on the side. Okay. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Although it's kind of, you know, from this angle, it's because you're seeing it from the top. Mm -hmm. It's not the best angle. Uh, But, yeah, I don't... Even from this angle, if that knob thing was on, you'd you'd be able to see it. Exactly. Yeah. Looks like they just had different variations. Right. Now... That might be more like what I got from Roddenberry. Right. I wonder if there's a difference between the Taz where no man has gone phaser and the cage phasers. Maybe that's the difference. Uh, Maybe. You're right, maybe. And maybe I've got the where no man has gone before one. I don't know. I didn't know that they changed it that much. Actually, I'm looking at where no man has gone before and their phasers have the three buttons and the dial. Oh, okay. That's exactly what it is. Wow. I always thought they used the same one. Oh. 
Okay. It's crazy. Well, you, you sent me a photo. That, yeah, that's from the cage. That's where, from... Right. Yeah. Well, here, I'll send you a picture from where No Man Has Gone Before, and it looks like that one. Okay. Which would make more sense. Yeah. So they they add more more garbage onto it. Right. And then... Um, like, we get a second chance to make this pilot. <laughs> exactly. Add a bunch of junk. And there's a third time that they use those lasers. Oh, you found it. There you go. Yeah. So that's from the Salt Vampire one. Oh, that's right. That isn't even where No Man Has Gone Before. No, that's from the... Uh, so that's yeah. from the regular TV series. Right. Not where No Man Has Gone Before. But that was actually the first... I'm, I'm pretty sure that the Salt Vampire one was the first episode aired. Aired, right. That's true. Yeah. There you go. So... I did not cool. know it at the time, but they had multiple ones. Yeah. There you go. And, of course, the cover of this issue, one of them, is showing three phaser rifles. Count them. Three. Very How many cool. do you have? I have, like, one. Are you crazy? Could, could we reenact this if we were in the same room? Uh, no, because I only have one. But another interesting thing is, and I, se- I think I sent you the article, but um, there was an article that was talking about how that phaser rifle helped, to some degree, help to sell the original TV show, supposedly. Right. Oh, I believe it, because it looks cool. Yeah. So, did we say, I bet there's some point in time we said this before, so I'm, really quickly, I'm just going to recap. Roddenberry, they had the original Cage pilot, which was good, but a lot of people were like, eh, eh. You know, too cerebral, blow out of whatever. So supposedly because of Lucille Ball's, you know, it, Desi Lu is the company that produced Star Trek. They got a, to some degree because of her influence, they got a second shot, which was unusual. Because these pilots are not cheap to make. They got the second one, and as part of, they want to punch it up. They want to make sure it's really, you know, cool and stuff. Uh, where No Man Has Gone Before, the second pilot. And so they said they, you know, they need a bigger gun. They need a rifle of some kind. And so they got the guy that created the uh, Man From U.N.C.L.E. pistol that turns into a rifle, or that turns into a machine gun. So the guy that did that for the Man From U.N.C.L.E. TV series, which I think only started in 65, so only a year before Star Trek, he went ahead and he only had two weeks to come up with a cool-looking phaser rifle. And he did it, and only one was ever built. Oh, is that right? Only one. And I guess because of the budget or whatever on the regular TV series, they decided to not spend the money on making additional ones. So there only ever was one of them, and it was built in two weeks. (laughs) Mm. You know, from design all the way through to the finished version that uh, Shatner and Nimoy held in Where No Man Has Gone Before. And you never saw it again. Huh. But you see three of them now. on this cover. I wonder where it is now. I'm sure it's in a museum somewhere. Oh, right? it was sold at auction for a very high amount. When it was sold at auction, it not only came with the phaser rifle, but it also came with all of the designs and all the notes uh, that was used in its construction. Mm. So you got the whole thing. And that was good because I, I don't remember the exact dollar amount it sold for. But it was like, yeah, like fifty thousand dollars or something. It was just a ridiculous amount of money. The uh, starting bid was two hundred and fifty thousand. Oh, it was that much. Okay. 
Two, yeah. The starting bid was two fifty. Starting. What, what did it sell for? Uh, over fifty, over five hundred thousand. Oh, it was f- over five. <sighs> half, half a million dollars. Oh my god! Huh? Wow. Did you know that Ben Stiller has the head mask or the the head part of the original Gorn? Oh, I thought you were going to say the Mugatu. No. So he was he was on an English TV series or something, or not a TV series, a talk show or something with Ricky Gervais, uh, and 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 the interviewer. I don't know how it came up, but but he goes ahead and says, uh, you know, uh, for whatever reason this came up, he said, well, I'm a Star Trek fan. I've got the original Gorn, uh, you know, um, costume headpiece, and then Ricky Gervais is just tearing into him. A Gorn? How many people know what a Gorn are? Or you know, whatever. With mm-hmm. ba- my bad English accent, but uh, he was just ripping into him. <laughs> Ricky Gervais, you could be such a jerk at times. Anyway, that's funny. Yeah. Well, you know what? If you have the money, why not? Hey, if you got multi millions, why not? Indeed. Yeah, like the puppet guy. Uh, what's his name? Um, puppet guy. Jeff Jeff Dunham. Oh yeah. He's a fan. He owns one of the original Tim Burton Batmobiles. Oh, man. That's cool. Yeah. And when I first saw that, I was like, the puppet guy has it? And then I thought about it. I'm like, (laughs) like, hell yeah, he has it. If that's that's what he's into and he has the money, why not? Uh, Good for him. That'd be cool. That's what I'd probably spend my first couple million dollars on. He did that whole video with him and his family about that chariot, that recreation of the Lost in Space chariot. Oh, right. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Should we get back to this book? Yeah. Uh, uh, do we have a book? <laughs> okay, that's all I have to say about this one. I've I've said all my my comments. No, same here. Does it ever show the Enterprise at all in this whole book? I don't think it does. Does it? You know, that's a good point. I was just curious. Uh, I'm just scanning it, through, and I'm not seeing it. Cage, Cage Enterprise or Kirk's Enterprise, but nope, it's not they don't here. show it. So hmm. not oh, in well. here. Maybe it'll be an issue, too, because surely they won't jump five years in the future, because it was on a cliffhanger. Oh, okay, so Enterprise does show up. Oh, really? In issue one? In, no, issue two. Yeah, 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 I know. Yeah, issue two. Yeah, I know. I'm kidding, because they jumped for five years, yeah. which I thought was pretty abrupt. It was abrupt, but kind of cool. Right. All right, let's see what happens. Okay. Issue number two of Mission's End. I could not find a, an issue-specific title either. Published date, April 2009, and I think the entire creative team are 100% the same. There's one cover. I think the letterer is different. Oh, is it? Robbie Robbins? It's Robbie Robbins. Okay. Okay. And then uh, O'Neill Yataki did the first one. Okay. Exactly. There you go. Okay. Robbie Robbins is different. Okay. We got one cover, which is a pretty cool one. I kind of like it, although Kirk looks a little odd. He looks a little robotic or something, but it's a nice drawing. And so Kirk and Spock are standing beside a shuttlecraft and they're firing their phasers into apparently spiders because you see the spider legs. And I'm pretty sure these are spiders and not the millipedes, but I mean, they, they look like spider legs, but they don't have hands at the end. So whatever. I particularly like the the very good drawings of the Type 2 phasers, so, you know, we're, we've jumped to the future. We've got regular 
Taw's TV series uniforms on, and we've got uh, Taw's phasers being used. And I really like the mostly red, really dark purple kind of phaser beams coming off. And there's even a little bit of sparking happening from the emitter coming off on the sides, which kind of reminds me of that big phaser laser cannon that they used in the Cage uh, TV episode. Anyway, it looks really good. I love, I love the drawing. And that one's by Joe Caroni. Five years has passed since the Enterprise's first visit to Archirnar 4, as seen in the last comic issue. The High Administrator of Arachnar 4 is addressing the UFP Council and saying some pretty positive things about their people's potential admission into the Federation. He seems to be a good guy and wants his people to join, but he mentions that the location of his planet is to remain a secret. Okay, it's an odd condition, their entry, but that is a condition. Meanwhile, elsewhere, the High Administer's son is planning his father's murder since he and his supporters do not want to join the Federation. He has the aid of two human assassins, one of which looks a lot like Kirk with, a Kling, with Klingon facial hair. When word gets out the Federation killed his father, many will flock to the son's anti-Federation cause. So thinks the son. Facial hair guy says his organization does not want Arachnar to join and is ready to do the deed. He is handed a security card from the sun that will get him and his accomplice into the high administrator's chamber. Suddenly, facial hair guy makes an admission that he has been lying this whole time and his organization very much wants them to join the Federation. He and his accomplice then proceeds to kill the son and his bodyguard. While the accomplice cleans up the mess, facial hair guy puts the security card into a computer reader to see what is on it. Strangely enough, on the security card, he also finds an explanation of the secret power source of Arachnar 4 has access to, is, is inside of the, uh, the planet's spaceship. Recognizing the value of his information, he shoots his accomplice saying he does not feel like sharing the proceeds. And oh, by the way, I've been sleeping with your wife for years. So this guy is a poopy head guy. Six months later, Kirk's log reports, the Enterprise has returned to Arachnar 4 for the Federation Treaty Signing Ceremony to take place in two days. Dr. McCoy has been assigned to look for a plant that could be a cure for Blake's disease. Kirk, Ambassador Cassidy, former captain, Lieutenant Hadley, and others will take the shuttlecraft Columbus down to the site of the ceremony due to transporter and communication beams being blocked by the artificial outer crust of the planet. Sorry, that was rather a long sentence. This is the final assignment of the current Enterprise crew's five-year mission. While on the shuttle ride down, McCoy and Spock have a philosophical debate over why the Arachnarnians were offered Federation membership so soon, given their barbaric, immature societal tendencies. McCoy says it's so we can get our hands on their power generation tech. McCoy says they should find a way to permanently disable it so that no one is tempted to use it for evil purposes. Spock says the Federation's motive is self-preservation. They want to guide the Arachnarians 
to not use the power source for weaponry that could even threaten the Federation in the long run. As the shuttle makes its way to the landing location, a channel is opened to the High Administrator, and pleasantries are exchanged between he and Captain Kirk. They also find out the Arachnarian's High Minister for Truth and Science will not be making the signing ceremony, but he confides he has been looking forward to this day for a long time. Cue the maniacal evil laughter. The science minister then pulls a gun on the high administrator and starts a revolution right in front of Kirk's eyes. He goes on to show Kirk that they figured out all kinds of cool tech from the previous tenants, including sensors that locate exactly where the Federation observation station and the Enterprise is in orbit. They raise some kind of gravitational shields around the planet and fire an energy burst that destroys the observation station totally and all who are on board. A micro black hole forms where the observation station was and immediately pulls the Enterprise towards it. Scotty makes a desperation play by jettisoning the warp coils towards the black hole. They escape destruction, and Mr. Moore, the helmsman, moves the ship away from the planet that they think is at a safe distance. Hmm, that Mr. Moore has a very familiar set of facial hair, and he looks a bit like Kirk. Hmm. From the shuttle, Kirk tells the science minister he will pay for what he has done. The minister says he is doing it all for his people, and Kirk is soon going to lose even more when he takes a second shot at the Enterprise. Kirk aims the shuttle directly at where he recalls the control chamber is and plows the shuttle with all power to the forward shields into the chamber. Once inside, they exit the shuttle with phasers set to stun and start kicking ass and taking names. Except for Chekhov, who grabs a spider machine gun and blasts away with it. Who needs a phaser? When the dust settles, the science minister is dead and the high administrator is alive. The high minister asks Kirk and his party to withdraw. He needs time to deal with this betrayal and to speak to his people. Kirk agrees, and they all leave. They return to the ship, and Scotty's status report says warp engines are out until they can get a new set of warp coils. Kirk contacts Starfleet and is told Kirk needs to make sure the signing ceremony happens on time. The High Administrator allows Kirk to take over security for the event. Kirk tells McCoy he has to continue his mission to obtain those plant samples to cure Blake's disease. Everything needs to proceed as planned, or the terrorists win. Ambassador Cassidy has a short and terse conversation with Kirk over the condolence letters she needs to write to the families of the 11 people who lost their lives on the observation station. On the artificial planet, McCoy is joined by Chekhov and three red shirts. After searching for the large-leafed black plant, for a while they are accosted by large millipedes carrying universal translators. They want the healer to follow them. Surprised, McCoy agrees. Okay, remember how that ended. To be continued. Remember how it ended. Yes. 
Yeah, to me, it seemed like like McCoy agreed, although he was still kind of in shock over the whole thing. Right. They talk? What? Exactly. They're intelligent. I mean, I don't think we've seen up to now at all the fact that those millipedes are intelligent, have we? Nope. But they were able to get their hands on universal translators and use them to try to speak to McCoy and the landing party. Right. Yeah. So he doesn't actually agree, but he does say, okay, that was surprising. So maybe that is an yeah. agreement. I don't know. Well, I saw, the, right. I saw the okay. It sounded like, but he could have been saying, okay. You know, not agreement, but like weird. So, anyway. But everybody seems kind of calm, right? Right. right. Okay, so that's how this ends. You'd be a little shocked, too, if the cow started talking. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Especially one that is like, what, 30 feet tall and could probably crush you easily? Right. He'd crush you like a bug? Crush you like a bug. I had to say that. <laughs> okay. So what do you think? Um, I thought the time jump was interesting. Mm-hmm. I guess we get two time jumps. One's four and a half years later, mm-hmm. and then the next one is six months after that. So. Yep. Adds up to five. Right. So how do you like beard guy? More? Facial hair guy. Uh, I don't think he looks like Kirk. I know that you were saying I, that. You've been saying that for weeks now, and I yeah, just don't see it. I think he does. Well, to me, he does. <laughs> I mean, look at it. He's the sideburns and everything. I mean, now I know Taz guys, a lot of them have the same sideburns. But uh, he looks like Kirk. I thought he was Kirk. All right, so you're you've been a fan for Star Trek longer than I have. Yeah, you know, just because you're older. Um, ah, a lot older. <laughs> have you ever cut your sideburns into the Star Trek triangle? No, I, I have, have not. been tempted many times just to do it, just just to say I did, but I have never pulled the trigger and actually done it. I never have because, quite frankly, I don't. I don't think I could because I just don't have thick enough hair. Going down in that area. Oh, really? Yeah. So I'm 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 a guy that if I actually grew out a beard, I would look like Timothy Hutton in in a mo- in a really old movie where it was all patchy and stuff. I, I don't I don't have good I don't have a good face for uh, for facial hair. Uh. So I can't. But I will say that I did notice. Not that I watched it that often, but there was a point in time when I took a look at Beverly Hills 90210. And I noticed most of the male characters had Star Trek Taw's sideburns. Hmm. And it was like, did, are they doing that on purpose? Did that become popular I don't, in the I, 90s? I don't think it did. But I mean, it, was like, it was like, you know, that really looks like the pointy <laughs> Star Trek sideburns. Right. Interesting. I'll have, yeah. to, I'll have to look that up one day. Yeah, you do that. You do that. Yeah, so I don't think he looks like Kirk, but I get I get who you're talking about. Um, <laughs> I just want to know who he works for and what his plan is. Yes, well, he does say, and the section I work for very much wants your world to join the Federation. The section. So, hmm, we know that there's at least 31 sections, so <laughs> there's a lot of sections to choose from. Right, but 
there are some sections that tend to act a little bit more like this guy's acting. Although he seems like a bad egg even for Section 31, if right. that's who he works for. If that's, if that's who he works for, yeah. yeah. Yeah, did the little guy work for a Section 31 too, or was he just a hired thug? I don't know. Hard to say, but it seems like they've been partners for a long time. Yeah, he gets a zap in the face. He gets a zap in the face. And quite frankly, he says, which, which is really kind of, I, I kind of find it humorous, uh, I'm going to kill you, and by the way, just let you know, I've been sleeping with your wife for years. I mean, the guy is not handsome, so I'm just kind of envisioning what his wife looked like. He's a little guy. He's a little guy. He's a little guy. Anyway, so he seems like a bad guy, even if he was part of Section 31. Yeah. Got to see Surak, Spock's dad, Sarek. Sarek. I always, get, always Sarek. mix him up when I first start talking. Right. Sarek, yeah. <laughs> Some of those Vulcan names are kind of close to each other. Right. So it was kind of cool seeing him there. Yeah. And I kind of like the idea of Starfleet trying to push this through mm-hmm. in order to get it off the table from other people that might want to get this information. Right. I agree. I think it's very interesting how Federation is handling this in general. Right. I mean, this is a real threat. If these right. guys go on a terror spree, I mean, it is only one ship, though. I mean, you'd think they'd be able to take them out. But still, I mean, they could be another, you know, enemy that they have to deal with for a long time to come. So they're trying to uh, guide them. And it looks like it's worked. I mean, at least the high administrator seems like a pretty good guy. Right. So success there, only not with everybody. Especially a son. Yeah, you ain't kidding. It did get me thinking about, you know, how long do these insects live? Mm. Because in Enterprise, when they meet up with that insectoid Zindi, mm-hmm. I mean, I know in the books, I, I can't remember if it's actually mentioned in the, in the stories, the shows. But I mean, but they, they have very short lives. Mm-hmm. And so, like, you know. You know, they go through several generations just in the in in the show, right? So mm-hmm. I wonder if these insects are the same way, or if he uh, was the guy know. that they talked to five years ago. These really big ones might have longer lifespans. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. But they're not part know. of the Federation. They're not part of Starfleet. So why do they all have the little Starfleet smocks on? Oh, the the spiders do. Yeah. Oh, well... They're all wearing, like, little overalls that have the Starfleet Delta on there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, good point. Good point. But they're not Starfleet. Well, and not all of them do that. But, yes, there's a fair number of them that do. A good number of them, yeah. Even the son who gets killed does. Huh. Well, okay, so we do find out that the Federation has given them computer technology, which they didn't have before. I guess that's part of the reason that the computer hair face guy was... uh, reading the card with, was right. able to do that. So they've been giving them a lot of stuff. But yeah, what, clothing? I don't know. Hey, you're kind of fans of ours, so here, have a jersey. <laughs> I mean, is that it? I don't know. I don't know, it just seems weird. Yeah, Cause, I agree. I mean, it's not even Federation. It, that's that's Starfleet. And at this time, that's just the Enterprise. That's just the Enterprise. I, I know you keep saying that, and I, I agree with you, but it has become the symbol for Starfleet, so, for better or for worse. 
I know you like. Cassidy, I, I know you. I know you like airtight continuity. Cassidy doesn't have it. She has a completely different logo on her shirt. Yep. What? So, you know, even at this point, at the end of the five-year mission, Federation or the Starfleet has not adopted the Enterprise Delta as as their logo. Okay, but the aliens have. But the aliens have, yeah. Right. Or maybe they just like uh, the Enterprise that much. Yeah. You remember that one ship that was here five years ago? We really like it. <laughs> Let's put it on all, their, all our clothing. We haven't seen them since, but that's yeah. our team. That's our team. There you go. Yeah. So I thought the artwork when the warp cores explode was pretty cool. Okay. Can we talk about that for a second since you bring it up? Uh-huh. Okay, so it's the warp coils. So Scotty calls it the warp coils. Right. Not the warp core. That's true. So... Um, the warp coils are actually in the nacelles. So if you looked inside of those long rocket-shaped nacelles, you would see, I don't know, 12, 13, some number of coils run along the length of most of the uh, nacelle. So that's where the coils are. We know the core, warp core, is something that is made to jettison because that's where the matter-antimatter mix happens, and it's very explosive. So I wonder how Scotty was able to take all the warp coils out of both nacelles and jettison them towards the, um, the mini black hole. So you're thinking maybe it's a typo? Or, okay, so jettison are warp coils towards the trouble, and they form a warp field around it. So, I mean, that's what the warp coils do. They form a bubble of uh, a warp field around the ship and allow it to go at warp speeds. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense that they're saying warp coils. That makes sense. But how we can do that with no power? I mean, it's the power from the... Well, whatever. This is all made up. But (laughs) my fundamental issue is how the heck in in minutes is Scotty able to throw all the uh, warp coils at them? Unless it's made to be ejected like the warp core. Right. Interesting. I did not catch the coil part. Yeah. Well, right now I've got tape around my glasses in the middle. And uh, I am quite the, the nerd... <laughs> I was like, I was, I was like, well, what does that have to do with him reading a comic book? Oh. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, sir. Do you not realize that warp coils aren't built to be ejected? Ridiculous. Anyway, so I thought that was kind of like a oh, okay, fine, whatever. Scotty, you're a miracle worker. Maybe it's like a slinky, and he just like unpressurized it and it. And, and it, it just slinked out. Slides right off. Maybe. Maybe so. Maybe so. Did we ever see... We never saw on Taws the warp core eject. That was a TNG no. thing, right? Right. Yeah. But yeah. that makes perfect sense. But, yeah. No, it makes sense, yeah. But you got to admit, the artwork was pretty nice when it blows up. Yes, it looked good. Or creates this... Warp bubble around the black hole. Whatever it's doing, it looked right. Cool. <laughs> Whatever techno babble they were spewing. 
Yeah. It looks it, good. It reminded me of the 2009 dropping the warp core into a, a black hole to, and then riding it out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that's not how black holes work. Yeah. Yeah, I really don't think that's how black holes work. It, it did look really good. But on that page where we're seeing that cool, like, multi-ringed effect or whatever, blue yeah. light and all that kind of stuff looking really cool. Um, the next panel down on the left, look at how stupidly skinny the neck pylon is that connects the primary and secondary hulls. Right. I mean, that is almost as skinny as those ridiculous popsicle sticks they use in Taws for the nacelle pylons. It's like, come on, guys. I mean, you couldn't draw that proper thickness. And it seems too high, too. I agree. I agree. Yeah, I, I noticed that, too. Yeah. But what I really liked about that panel, or that page, yeah. is Moresby in there. Oh, right, in the background? Nice little nod. Yeah, yeah Scotty nice... even talks to her by name. Doesn't she look less furry, though? Yeah, she's definitely thinner. Yeah. So she almost looks like she's bald. I mean, she's not, but her her fur's all matted down, I guess. Right. It's a stressful situation. She just it might is. be... It is. Glossed down a little bit with right. sweat or something. Exactly. And so somehow, Section 31 guy got himself to be helmsman on the Enterprise. Yeah, pretty impressive. Pretty impressive. How did he manage that? I'm not sure, but he did it. I mean, he is part of Section 31. Yep. They could do anything. They could do many things. Um, right, because you got to think, they were off where no man has gone before. I right. doubt they got a lot of personnel changes while they were out in the unknown. Yeah. Well, you're on your five-year mission away from Earth until the story requires you to come back. <laughs> or at least come in range of other Federation planets. Yeah, which seems to happen all the time. Exactly. Spot on. So, um, and then they pull a uh, Star Trek V maneuver with the shuttlecraft crash uh, oh, into mm-hmm. a building. Correct, correct. I didn't uh, think about that. Yeah. So they got full shields on the front, and doggone Kirk, you got a good memory. Wasn't it five years ago? Yeah, four and a half years ago? Whatever. But he remembers where the control room is, that... <laughs> that the Minister of Science is likely doing all of his hijinks from. So, good job. But Yeah, good thing they didn't put like a bookshelf or something there. <laughs> <laughs> or a brick wall. <coughs> well, it is brick, isn't it? Well, it looks like it's glass. But yeah. Oh, glass? Oh, well, they wouldn't have need, needed shields to the forward if that's all it was. Oh. Well, they had to plow through a bunch of spiders. You don't want that... Uh-huh. on the windshield no you are correct i mean when it's when the columbus is smashing through it looks like glass right but when you're looking at it from a distance uh whatever (laughs) it's a book it's a book it's a book so Chekhov grabs one of the guns that the aliens had and it looks like a a very contemporary type machine gun. Mm-hmm. Looks like a projectile weapon. Right, with a with a clip. Magazine clip. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so why did... I mean, it looks cool and stuff, but what, did his phaser jam or something? He had to switch weapons? 
Maybe uh, they didn't bring it because it was a diplomatic mission. Oh, come on. I mean, they, oh, no, they, fate, they fate came. One, so, yeah. Yeah. And Captain, what's her face, is Cassidy. coming out too. There you go, Cassidy. Or uh, Ambassador. Ambassador, no. So she's coming out with her, you know, phasers going. Hmm. Yep. All right. Uh, that's maybe all I have. The only thing I have to say is the whole micro black hole thing. It's like, okay, so the weapon shot at the space station, the observation post, whatever they're calling it, created a mini black hole. So it, so the mini black hole is what, or the formation of it is what destroyed the ship or the space station? Yep. That looked like space K-9? Was it or K-7? Is it K-7 or K-9? K-9. No, it's K-7. It's K-7. Oh, the, the, spa- and, the space station. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. So it looks like the, like the space station from Trouble with Tribbles. Mm-hmm. And so that's the observation thing. And so it blows up and then forms the black hole, mini black hole? Or the mini black hole destroyed the space station uh, rather than just sucking it in? I don't know. It just seems like a weird weapon. Right. Well, I mean, it is a mini black hole. Which really, if you want to take care of business, a mini black hole would probably do the job. Right. Definitely Unless you happen to have warp coils. <laughs> yeah. But how do you control a mini black hole? I don't know. Does it just go away? I don't know. Once you feed it enough? <laughs> now, you've only got one moon-sized planet, right? Only one Death Star. And you're going to open up a mini black hole next to it. I don't know that's a good idea. Yeah, you need to you need to get some distance. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right, that's it. Let's do number three. Let's do number three. All the same staff as the last one. Came out May of 2009. That's how we say it, right? 2009. Uh, it came out May of 2009. Just one cover, which is very unlike IDW. This is by Joe Corney, and it shows... Chekhov holding the phaser rifle Ken loves so much. And then McCoy standing next to him with a communicator open. And then behind him we see two of the giant centipede, millipede looking things. So the story starts with McCoy, Chekhov, and the rest of the landing party, all consisting of security red shirts, attacking the uh, giant centipedes with phasers. Eventually the crew gets captured and they get carried off to an unknown hive of the centipedes. Meanwhile, the Spider-Men are having a memorial service for all the Starfleet crew that was lost on the space station during the last issue. Kirk, Spock, Cassidy, and many of the other Starfleet crew are there in attendance as well, and everybody's wearing their great dress uniforms. After the ceremony, Spock, Kirk, and Cassidy have a chance to talk in private. Spock is perplexed on the advancements that Spider-Men have been making, and they discuss how they could have advanced so quickly over the last five years. Their revelry is cut short when a crew member rushes in and informs Kirk, and, and informs Kirk that McCoy's team has gone missing. Kirk then swoops into... Co- Kirk then swoops into McCoy's last location in a shuttlecraft. 
and they blast away a large number of the centipedes with their phaser rifles so that they can land. Once on the ground, they notice that the stunned centipedes all have a different colored forehead marking than the one that they're used to seeing. They find no evidence of McCoy and are forced to retreat by a swarm of giant stinging dragonflies. They vow to return back shortly with better equipment so that they can scan the area through the ship's natural radiation. Meanwhile, in the lair of the centipedes, McCoy is doctoring up one of the bugs. The red shirts are telling Chekhov that they are the ones that are about to die because they're wearing red shirts and that McCoy and Chekhov will be just fine due to the color of their clothing. So this is obviously a nice joke for the readers, but it is funny to see McCoy and Chekhov's faces at this absurd notion. The leader of the centipedes arrive and he continues to speak as the one did last issue. It thanks McCoy for bandaging up the injured ones. Uh, the leader explains how they are in charge of watching over what they call the eyes of the god, which McCoy says is the spark plugs of the ship's great engine. Uh, the bugs implore that the humans take the eyes of the god off the ship and keep it safe from the spiders. McCoy refuses. The leader then says that they'll have to have a war with the spiders then and asks if McCoy will at least stay to treat the wounded, which McCoy says that he will do. Later, Kirk and Cassidy report the recent events to Admiral Nagoya. He tells them that the induction into the Federation needs to happen regardless of the planetary struggles. He says that having the ship, planet, whatever you want to call it, as a Federation member will take what they call General Order 24 off the table as an option. Once the communications with the boss is cut, Cassidy cannot believe that General Order 24 is even being considered, which Order 24 is the complete destruction of all life on the ship slash planet. Kirk then contacts Scotty about the repairs on the ship. Scotty says that things are going well, but slow. Kirk orders around-the-clock shifts for everybody until it's all done. Meanwhile, on the ship, Sulu is walking with the man that we know as Moore through the ship's corridors. Moore steps away towards his room and tells Sulu that he just needs to take a quick shower before his next shift. In reality, he uses this time to use a makeshift device to contact his employers and reports in on the progress. The people he speaks to seem to be green-skinned aliens with technology on their heads. And uh, they say all they care about is getting the coordinates to the ship. And that he doesn't really care about all the hoops that Section 31 has had to jump through in order to get more on the ship. Moore gives the location of the superweapon and the insect's home. Meanwhile, on the bridge, Ahura is able to discover that there's a strange broadcast being sent out somewhere in the ship, and she reports it to Scotty. Later, Kirk, Cassidy, and Spock arrive at the Heart of the Gods, which, as we know from the first issue, is the main power station for the whole ship. This is where the final ceremony for citizenship is going to take place. The crew arrive riding some of the large centipedes. And as they arrive, the centipedes then 
revolt and an all-out war ensues. Uh, during the struggle, Kirk is again on top of one of the creatures and he rubs his hands on the little red spot and he learns that this is actually just paint over a lighter color marking on the centipede's heads. Then some rock falls and injures Kirk and the centipedes make off with another one of the hexagon-shaped quote-unquote eye of the gods. And the story is to be continued from there. This is a cliffhanger. They've all been cliffhangers. Yes. So Kirk is unconscious. Spock's legs are hurt. Ahura's hot on the trail of the Section 31 spy for the Orion Syndicate. Did they actually say Orion? Is that who it is? I thought it was Orion Syndicate. That would make sense. I was just, who are these green guys? (laughs) (laughs) I thought they actually said Orion Syndicate, but I could be wrong. Did they? Um... And then McCoy and Chekhov are held by the multipedes, the rebel multipedes. Right. And the multipedes apparently appear to be disabling the heart of gold by taking those parts away. It's what McCoy wanted back in, the, in issue two. McCoy wants what back? He wanted the technology to be disabled. Right, right, right. And yeah. so no one would use it for ill. So that nobody would use it, right. Right. And that's, I mean, when they take these panels away, the, the millipedes, are, are they disabling the power source? Yeah, that's what it seems like. Yeah. It almost seems like they know that it could be used for evil, and in their religion, they have to watch over it to keep it from doing harm to others. Right. It's not incredibly clear, but that was the way I took it. But isn't that thing also generating the power that, like, is running life support yeah. or something? <laughs> exactly. So it might backfire. It might blow up the whole thing. <laughs> Maybe you guys didn't think this whole thing through. They are bugs. <laughs> uh, I mean, I don't want to be racist for any bugs listening. Species but, uh, or whatever. They are a little, a little on the dumb side. <laughs> <laughs> right. But smarter than we thought. Obviously, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, no, I agree with you on the a very abrupt change of tone between the end of the second issue and the beginning of this one. Mm. Because it does, upon rereading it, sounds like, hey, you want to help? You want to help in some of our injured guys? And McCoy's like, yeah. And then the next issue, they're like, shoot him, shoot him, kill him, kill him. Or, or at the very least, McCoy's like getting used to the idea. So it's like, okay, okay. But yeah, well, the beginning of this one is complete battle, battle mode. Yeah. So maybe it's just the red shirts that. That, uh, you know, they saw the, the writing on the wall for them, so they just start shooting. <laughs> that is great. <laughs> when that one red shirt guy is saying, hey, we got red shirts. We don't tend to come out of these situations okay, like you guys. And I love Chekhov's face. Like, that's, that's, that's crazy. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's a funny little moment. Yeah, that's good. I like that. So, uh, I mean, you remember Red Shirts, that, that book? Oh, yes. Yeah. So I think that was John Scalzi. And that, that was great. I mean, it, yeah. I mean, it obviously was a kind of humorous taking it to extreme or whatever. Right. Um, but kind of similar. Like, like the command staff is like, oh, what are you talking about? And the Red Shirts are like getting killed off left and right in that book. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Okay, so this is the one that has the scene, the cityscape. The ambassador and Kirk and Spock and a few red shirts are standing on an ice balcony. 
mm-hmm. and then and a nice doorway with a nice little filigree decoration there around the door, mm-hmm. which looks tall. The doorway is tall, but not that much taller than normal. And then you see in the distance like little castle turrets or whatever, and then something else that looks like almost like one of those, you know, Russian turnip kind of <laughs> tops. <laughs> And it's like, this looks very human. Right. Um, So this was built by spiders. Right. Right. Or is this part of the quote-unquote giants that used to live here? Yeah. uh, Well, they weren't that giant. Yeah, they weren't that big. Oh. Yeah, because it shows them in the auditorium, too. And it's a very normal-looking auditorium with a bunch of rows of seats that obviously a giant wouldn't be able to sit in. No. No. So this must have been built by the spiders that that have hands in three digits. Mm-hmm. Oh, and extra arms. Yeah, because they need. I would assume that spider chairs would look different than human chairs. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> but in this auditorium, they're very human-like chairs. Oh, like like the saddles that are on the millipedes? Or oh yeah, I didn't even think about that. No, I was talking about. I guess it was last issue where. Okay. Where they last showed... issue where all the people were sitting there in the in the auditorium. Right. I don't think that would be very good for an alien, but no. But a humanoid butt, it's perfect. Yeah, it's fine. That works. Anyways, that's a little nitpicky. It is a little bit. I did like how the centipedes grabbed up the the crew and carried them in their forearms and walked back. Yeah, totally disabled them. It's like, it almost made a cage of their arms to hold them in. Right. Yeah, visually, I really like this story a Mm -hmm. lot. Mm -hmm. But, I don't know. Overall, I'm not, I'm not being blown away with it. <laughs> well, it's odd. The aliens are so different from humans. Kirk can't, like, woo the princess, <laughs> <laughs> spider princess or anything. And, you know, some of the things you'd normally see, you just can't see with this very different alien species they're trying to deal with. Now, see, I would have liked that. I would have liked it. What if the, the, the leader had Uki. a daughter instead of a... A son, and Kirk had to put the moves on her. Oh, ooky. Well, the big thing about Kirk that I find fascinating is on the last page, he suddenly seems to be turned into Mr. Magoo. I mean, when he gets hit by the rock, the look on his face, it's like, that does not look like Kirk. (laughs) And, and okay, maybe not Mr. Magoo, but close. (laughs) I mean, just, just something about the look on his face. You know, with with his mouth hanging open. I'm and... sure if you took a rock to the back of the neck, you wouldn't be all that pretty either. <laughs> I agree, but just, just something is off about the drawing. Uh, that's all I'm saying. And yeah. the panel above it, you know, when that laser beam shoots up or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, where Kirk is helping Spock, I mean, th- that's a great drawing of Kirk. And then the next time you see him, he looks like Mr. Magoo. <laughs> I got hit with a rock. Anyway. <laughs> that's your Mr. Magoo impression? No. That's my droopy dog impression. Mr. Magoo sounds like uh sounds just like Jay Thurston Howell from uh, Gilligan's Island. Really? I always thought he sounded like Frank Drevin from uh <laughs> Frank Drevin? The, the from the police squad? squad? Yeah. <laughs> well, wasn't Mr. Magoo done by Jim Backus? Yeah, I was talking about the movie was done by... The actor in the movie was um, Leslie Nielsen. Oh! Oh, they... Oh, so they they did a a modern-day Mr. Magoo movie? Yeah, and it tanked 
so okay. bad it tanked bad. Wow. And they, they even pulled it like just like two or three weeks in because people were uh, – they thought that they were making fun of uh, nearsighted people. Oh, <laughs> well, that is kind of the joke Yeah, Mr. Magoo. But it's kind of why you haven't seen Mr. Magoo since we were kids. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. I think, I think that's one of the characters that you will never see in a modern show again. Except for, I mean, I guess he had a, a cameo in Family Guy a few years back. But, uh, but I think <laughs> that was because it's Family Guy and they get away with stuff. They get with it. Well, they'll do anything. <laughs> I, I think the censors at this point are like, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I'm sure the Mr. Magoo people weren't too happy that they were made a butt of a joke like that. I don't remember that. And I've seen a lot of Family Guy. I do not remember Mr. Magoo popping up. So mm-hmm. what, what was the joke? Oh, that he was driving and he was running over a bunch of people. <laughs> you got to expect that would have happened after all those years. Right. Anyways, this is not the Mr. Magoo podcast. No, but it could be. I don't think we have that much material. <laughs> well, we got a movie I didn't know about until just now. A movie. I remember Mr. Magoo from the. He was a comic strip in the newspaper, right? And then, uh, and is then that where it came from? TV specials. I, think. I just, I just remember the animated cartoon. And he was voiced by Gilligan's Island guy. Yeah, that's funny. I didn't know that. But Jim now Backus. that you mention it, I can totally hear his voice. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, ho, ho, Magoo, you've done it again. Yeah, like that. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> Uh, that's fine. All right, back to this. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, Orion Syndicate. Now that you mention it, that's totally them. Yeah. But do so, they say that? Oh yeah, they say it right there. Yeah, they do. Transmit the Omega weapon to the Orion Syndicate. So why there is Section go. Thirty-One working with the Omega Syndicate? Well, it's this guy. It isn't the. He's rogue. Ah. He's a Section Thirty-One guy that's so evil. He is just going for the money. So he sold the secrets to the highest bidder, which I guess is the Orion Syndicate. But you know Section 31's not going to be happy about that. No, but if you've got all that money, you're going to be gone. And if you're a Section 31 goon, you probably know their methods and how to hide from them. Right. Yeah, well, bad, bad news for him that they're about to get rid of all money. Because <laughs> the, the movie era, they don't have money anymore. That's right. Taz had credits. How else are you going to buy a triple? Exactly. Exactly. Hmm. Okay, so you're you're kind of lukewarm on the story so far. Yeah, you? Um, are you all in? I, I like it. I, I like it. I, I want to see this uh, facial hair guy, whatever his name is. I want to see him uh, more. And that's really probably not his real name. But I'm, I, I want to see this guy get his comeuppance. Sure. Yeah, I hope he gets it good. Yeah, I'm sure he will. I hope that little guy comes back to life. Or the wife. <laughs> well, the wife's probably not dead. I know. I want her to come back and like, you killed my husband. I loved him. I was only sleeping with you to get to yes. get information. To get information. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that would be a twist. Yeah. That's right. Get information from my, my honey bunny. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He never trusted you, so he had me do that just to see if you were loyal or not. Oh, gosh. For five mm. years. For five years. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I have to say about this. 
So we have two more issues, right? Two more issues, yeah. Okay. And then what's our... Th- so next week, two more issues, and then the third book? Third book, we'll do Alien Spotlight, The Gorn. Cool. Cool. It's not quite insect people, but it's a, it's at least uh, some sort of weird alien. Yes. So lizard guys that are really slow, bad in fighting, except if they get their hands on you because they're really strong. And uh, they, uh, with universal translators, they still sound like a lizard. Yeah, unless you're in the mirror universe, then they're they kind of kick ass. Oh, they, was that was that Enterprise? Kirk. Yeah. Okay, right now. Or the alternate universe where he fights the Chris Pine Kirk. Oh, right. They, they kicked ass there too. Well, in the comic book, I, they were the main antagonists in that one game, right? Uh, yeah, the Star Trek game. Okay. Um, I just remember more of the comics. Right. The comic books. Yeah, uh, yeah. The ongoing comics that they had them in there. And it's like, man, those Gorns kicked butt. They were nothing like the Taz Gorns. They were almost too powerful. Right. And there were so many of them. Right. Good stuff. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to see a, more of a Taz Gorn, but looking from the cover, maybe a bit more uh, agile. Right. And it's going to be set after the motion picture, but before the Wrath of Khan. Okay, so it's right. Chekhov on the Reliant versus the Gorn. And Captain Tyrrell or whatever. Yeah, I think his name is Tyrrell, but I'm not sure. Yeah. Cool. Well, that's good. I mean, except for shooting himself uh, <laughs> and, and a few orders at the beginning of the movie. We didn't see much of that, Captain. Right. We saw the actor again in Next Gen, but uh, mm-hmm. playing a different guy. W- was he Darmok? Yeah, he was Darmok. Okay, so heavy makeup. Right. In a very enemy mine episode. Right. All right, then. Well, thank you, everybody, for sticking around, and we'll be back next week with um, the conclusion. (laughs) The conclusion of Mission's End. Thanks for joining us, everybody, on The Review. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music, stories, and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Or friend us on Facebook at first name, stcomic, second name, book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.